Welcome. Today's podcast from the book collector is the obituary of a man once described as hypnotic, manic, unrelenting. Eric Korn, written by the late Ian Jackson, is as much of a gem as its subject. It was published in the book collector in winter 2014 and is read here by John Windle. Such long-established newspapers as the Times are prepared for every contingency, with obituaries of promising fatalities commissioned decades in advance. Thanks to Paul Grinke, I have had Eric Korn's obituary on file ever since February of 1996, when he faxed me this extravaganza. He calls it a squib. Quote, a chance meeting in Amsterdam with Eric Korn, bookseller and master of foxhounds, the only man to ride to hounds in a t-shirt emblazoned Death to Foxes, natural selection, and the unusual Korn arms, a t-shirt mordant, jeans rampant, in a laundrette proper. He tells me that he has taken up driving. Not Pache Prince Philip with four horses, or three when in his reliant finch, and that he loves it. Mr. Toad, I inquired. Toot, toot, he replied. Foxes, beware. Easier to squash them than dig them out of the burrows. Later, of course, came aeroplanes. Good morning. This is your Captain Eric Korn. According to the received cosmology, we are flying around the world. But if you look out of the windows, you can see the sun whizzing around the horizon. So I don't intend to fly on instruments, but on my natural intelligence, lauded by my old-school chums, Dr. Jonathan Miller and Dr. Oliver Sacks, and frequently broadcast on the radio waves. And... In an amusing little manual I picked up at the PBFA fair, called Is Manned Flight Possible, 1878, on later examination the black box was found to contain only a stubby 3B pencil, Ian Jackson's catalogue 178, and a half-share invoice from salubrious passage Swansea. The corn hunt carries on regardless. End quote. This brilliant portrait avant du cesse by a latter-day John Aubrey was much enjoyed by its subject. It captures most of the essentials and requires only a little fleshing out by the distant Antony Awood, who is still a long way from Catalogue 178. Eric Korn was born Michael Eric Corn, but held archangelic names in scorn, and was always known as Eric. He grumbled when addressed in Hebrew, or as Michael, except by his sister. His business name of M.E. Corn Books 
was not intended to mislead the unwary, but to conform to British academic practice of the time. It was a reminder that Korn was, essentially, an eccentric scientist who had somehow drifted into the book trade. His father was said to have devised the price code still used by many in the jewellery trade, Buckingham. Korn himself adopted the code, penciling costs and much more onto the end papers of his books with that stubby little 3B pencil. He put the letters into Greek, however, and in idle moments made sufficient meaningless additions to construct a word or an entire sentence in some language or other. I once bought a book from him that was coded Gamma Omicron Lambda Lambda Omicron Digamma Omicron Gamma. Note the archaic digamma, or Gollywog, which converted to £7.57 pence, no doubt artistic license, for £7.50. Korn's own contribution to the vocabulary of the book trade was the useful figure of Colonel Perkins. Something for the Colonel, he would suggest to his companion in an unpromising bookshop, directing attention to a possible courtesy purchase. The wider world gained its first glimpse into Korn's childhood from Uncle Tungsten, Memoirs of a Chemical Boyhood by Oliver Sacks his closest friend, almost from birth. We were of much the same age, wrote Sachs, and would both be taken to Bronsbury Park to play by our nannies. They attended St. Paul's School, where Jonathan Miller was soon added to the equation. He and Jonathan and I formed an inseparable trio, bound not only by personal but by family bonds. Our fathers, thirty years earlier, had all been medical students together, and our families remained close. It was a delightful and apposite combination worthy of a nursery rhyme, Corn, Sachs, and Miller. After St. Paul's, Corn attended Queen's College, Oxford. Things did not go so smoothly after that, as he explained to Sheila Markham in her 1992 interview. Quote, I'm a failed academic, couldn't cut the mustard as a research scientist. I started working on snail brains, recte snail hearts, at Oxford, moved to Toronto, had a very productive year in Southampton, and finally ground to a halt in Liverpool. He did obtain his doctorate, but it took ten years, with natural indolence a contributory factor. But all was not lost. From his housemate, Margaret McTaggart, Corn learned that books could be sold for more, often much more, than they cost. He began to issue lists and catalogues, albeit sporadically. Number 178, came out in 1975, was the largest and last of some half-dozen. He had apparently started with catalogue 171. It was much too thick for stapling, badly folded perhaps by Korn himself, and arrived with grubby thumb-marked covers. The production was appalling even by the grim standards of the interregnum between hot metal and the computer, 
when the IBM Selectric was king. Korn had made corrections in a haphazard way, with additions by hand and out-of-register retyping, with a fresh ribbon that then leapt out like boldface. But bargains were to be had. For fifty pence you could have bought a disbound copy of Sir Richard Owen on the characters of the I.I. 1863. For £2.50, a collection of entertaining ephemetic essays on gastrozoology from palolo worms to haggis. This seems to be as good a place as any to note that Korn was an adventurous diner, undeterred by the indigestible. Lessons derived from the animal world, SPCK, no date, was advertised as containing predictably dog as example of fidelity, lark for cheerfulness, etc., tapeworm as example of economy of effort, and mink as example of amativeness, are inexplicably omitted. Customers considering the purchase of Richard Goldschmidt's Ascaris, a biologist's view of life, sick, 1938, at £1.25, were warned that it was not a manual of nematology, the roundworm is merely a stalking horse. Behind this entertaining, if unremunerative, style of bookselling stood the revered figure of Richard Freeman, 1915 to 1986, buyer and supplier of books, and fellow Darwinian whose office door also bore the name of Adrian Desmond and Eric Korn. Freeman had arranged to have them both appointed honorary research assistants in the Department of Zoology at University College London. There were a few sly references to his mentor. Of Richard Cope's Natural History, 1840, Korn noted, a distinguished bibliographer has remarked on the flyleaf quite the worst woodcuts I have ever seen. Personally, I would not deny them a certain gormless charm. Korn soon joined the PBFA and the ABA, whereupon conversation with customers at book fairs became a satisfying substitute for the printed word. Henceforth, he leaned confidingly over the glass case to promote his wares, resembling either the barkeeper or the drinker depending on the hour. There was, however, one last catalogue, issued by Serendipity Books on his behalf in 2007, and devoted to the huge H.G. Wells collection that he had formed in roughly a lifetime. It was shipped to California and lodged in Peter Howard's basement, where Korn catalogued it over several troglodytic months. The venue was appropriate, for Korn had a distinctive subterranean gestalt, one was surprised to find him above ground. It was refreshing to find an accumulation of modern first editions that was not a bibliothèque choisie of high spots in pristine dust wrappers. The collection was, instead, notable for its shabby copies of unrecorded sixth impressions of colonial editions. His catalogue annotations are genial, punctilious, and self-indulgent. The books were eventually sold to the University of Calgary in 2010. Although he was the trade's preeminent specialist in Darwin, there was no fat Darwin catalogue to match the H.G. Wells. 
Chris and Michelle Kohler's two-volume catalogue, The Darwin Collection, 2003, was in some faint way a substitute, for they drew heavily on Korn's stock and learning. In Darwinian matters, his speciality lay in the more obscure Freeman numbers, which made him the darling of the checklist collectors he encountered on the North American circuit of the Boston, Toronto, and California book fairs. Korn was not the man to supply you with a fine first of the origin, but he had family connections and did occasionally score a coup, quasi-miraculously, as when he acquired the Darwins of the author's second cousin, the Reverend William Darwin Fox, 1805-1880. High-powered dealers gnashed their teeth, and Korn did a mean imitation of some of them. Indignant that he had temporarily strayed from his familiar ecological niche. Interviewed by Sheila Markham, Korn claimed he would be remembered as nice chap, shame about the books. In male company, the self-epitaph was never caught without a rubber, which he insisted was the motto of every good second-hand bookseller. Korn admittedly often neglected to sweep away the residue of his erasures from the end papers, leaving them to desiccate in the gutter. He was not unaware of the fact that his books, for all their intrinsic interest, were sometimes in deplorable condition, nor were they enhanced by his handling of them. One prominent American collector refused to let him touch her books when he visited her library. His packing was erratic, the razor blade apt to stray from the cardboard to the contents. Korn had vast learnings in many fields, but little cash and no real business sense. With such liabilities, he owed more than most to the concern and affection of his friends. As Paul Grinke suggests, Jonathan Miller and Oliver Sacks never ceased to promote him as the wunderkind of their youth, inexplicably left behind on their ascent to fame. Korn had become a sort of intellectual Peter Best of St. Paul's. In the end, it was not his old-school chums who proved his salvation, but so improbable a figure as Jeff Towns of Dylan's bookstore, salubrious passage, Swansea. They met in 1977 when Korn chaperoned him, under a somewhat dubious, unwritten and unsanctioned setup, allowing PBFA members to share a stand with accredited ABA dealers at the Toronto Book Fair. As they packed up afterwards, Korn inquired, What are your plans now? I'm thinking of going down to Mexico. Do you want to join me? Adding by way of an aside, I assume you're fairly laid back about travelling? Off they went, and ever after they were Korn and Towns. Separate businesses, separate wives, and separate lives, but united forever for the purposes of bookselling. Korn provided Towns with a liberal education of extraordinary range. The irreverent referred to the duo as Towns and Gown, but his relationship with Towns was sine qua non and provided Korn with something rarer and more precious still, 
a stalwart friend and reliable companion who never lost the car keys. Of the many literary combinations of master and man, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, Jeeves and Wooster, Whimsy and Bunter, Don Giovanni and Leporello, the closest equivalent to Corn and Towns was the relationship of Poirot and Hastings. But Corn was a docile, deferential, and unfussy Poirot. He readily ceded dominion over all practical matters to Towns, who needed only to whisper, OK, boss, time to go, for Corn to snap to attention, stop in mid-sentence, and meekly follow Towns out the door. There was much more to Corn's life than mere bookselling. He answered questions on the BBC Radio 4 Round Britain quiz show and reviewed books for the TLS, the London Review of Books, The Guardian, and even, once, Country Life. He made, at very short notice, a rather slangy translation of Racine's Andromaque for production at the Old Vic by Jonathan Miller, who contributed a preface when the text was published in New York in 1988. His rambling, discursive, polymathic remainders column in the Times Literary Supplement throughout the 1980s was the delight of the truly bookish under the editors John Gross and Jeremy Treglown, until it was, in Korn's words, murdered, assassinated, axed, executed and chopped by Ferdinand Mount. The quintessence is preserved in the volume of that title, issued by Carganet in 1989. In pinches or sprinkles, remainders had been an agreeable condiment to the weekly paper, but in this concentrated Marmite form, it was not a book for the faint of heart. Wise readers rationed themselves to a few pages at a time. Most of the stock, or so Corn claimed, was destroyed in the IRA bombing of the Manchester Corn Exchange in 1996. Remainders has become a scarce and covetable volume. Corn only learned to drive late in life and, as often with late learners, had no instinctive command of the rules of the road. He never fully grasped the etiquette of a roundabout. Soon after he acquired his license, he pressed towns to allow him to drive their rented car as they explored the byways of the American Far West. Towns waited to hand over the wheel until they had reached a broad and deserted Nevada highway that ran straight across the desert for hundreds of miles. No sooner had he dozed off, however, than he was brusquely awakened by a soft thud. Corn had managed to run the car twenty feet off the road to rest with its fender embedded in a large cactus. He drove no more that day. I myself once suffered a near-death experience at midnight outside Buckingham Palace. The door of his reliant finch, or whatever it was called, was rusted out in parts, disclosing a frightening glimpse of the rushing road beneath. Corn cautioned me against being sucked out through the hole at my feet. He really indulged in touristic patter, but the recent break-in to the Queen's bedroom had caught his fancy, and prompted him to remove both hands from the wheel 
to point out the relevant fence with one hand and the relevant window with the other. We lurched across several crowded lanes at high speed to the accompaniment of a wild chorus of horns and squealing tyres from astonished fellow motorists. Toot toot, as they say. Like many persons of scientific bent and humanistic inclinations, Korn was not a man of letters, but a man of languages. For all the Kipling, Chesterton, Eliot and Browning he had memorised, literature remained for him essentially a wonderful game, a form of parallel play with words, not that such an approach, in the hands of Quesnot or Perec or Joyce, cannot embody literary dimensions. Korn was not above showing off in several tongues, but it was words that he savoured. He would cite parallels in Finno-Ugric, or Tamil vocabulary, at the drop of a hat, but really quoted literary works in their original languages. No long pretentious recitations of Arnaud Daniel in Old Occitan or Praxilla in the ancient Greek for him. It was inevitable that he would clash with authors of the temperament of, say, Frederick Raphael, who had their own styles of display. To his British audience, Korn was the dazzling polyglot phrasebook to end all phrasebooks. Raphael, by contrast, was the apostle of high culture to Hollywood. Korn's niggling corrections of Deteca to Ectacton in his TLS review of Raphael's Ticks and Crosses, Personal Terms 4, 2008, prompted a howl of execration from the wounded author, which took the form of a longish manuscript letter in Greek to the reviewer, and a complaint years later to his correspondent Joseph Epstein in Distant Intimacy, 2013, about, quote, that little crumb Eric Korn, a bouquinist who doubles as a hatchet man, unquote. Korn was married twice, first to the Canadian academic Marianne MacDonald, author of Ezra Pound, Purpose, Form and Meaning, and after their divorce, the Dido Whore series of biblio-mysteries, in which the presence of her ex-husband can be discerned. Korn also figures in Lucy Ellman's autobiographical first novel, Sweet Desserts, 1988. His second wife was Olga Shaumayan, Girl Friday to the Russian émigré publisher Alec Flegon, whom he met when Towns called him in to help clear out the relics of the Flegon press for shipment to Serendipity Books. Through Shaumayan, Korn was able to revivify his Russian originally learned on the National Service under the legendary Elizabeth Hill, and it was a pleasure to eavesdrop on their tete-a-tetes as the pair bickered over abstruse points of Slavonic philology. By 2010, it was clear that something was wrong. Korn's discussions had become still more discursive, and he would ramble wildly and often incomprehensibly in all directions. It was still possible to enjoy a conversation, however, for he obligingly stopped speaking and smiled whenever he had made a joke. This was his listener's cue to respond with laughter. 
Corn had always known that this was how it would end, having told Markham some 20 years earlier that, quote, book selling is a slow craft to learn, and once you begin to master it, Alzheimer's takes over. He was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia and retired in 2011. The rare book trade has plausibly been divided into the snobs and the slobs. In this division, there is no doubt as to the team to which Eric Korn belonged. He was short, squat, and larger than life. His much-loved and endearingly scruffy presence will be profoundly missed by booksellers of all persuasions. There was no one at all like him. Ian Jackson Michael Eric Korn, born London, 6th of November, 1933, died London, 7th of October, 2014. That was the obituary of Eric Korn, written by Ian Jackson and read by John Wendell. For many years, Korn had a column in the TLS called Remainders, which was also the title of a book compiled from these, quote, wads of peculiar recondite information, end of quote, such as a list of book titles that rhymed with their author's surnames, as in Appointment in Samara by John O'Hara. Did you enjoy that podcast? If so, you simply must subscribe to The Book Collector at www.thebookcollector.co.uk. Only £70 for a whole year, that's cheaper than Netflix. For that, you'll receive our splendid quarterly issues filled with erudite articles, reviews, book news, auction results and more. At the same time, you'll be able to browse our vast digital archive at your leisure. That's nearly 70 years of bibliophilic treasure. www.thebookcollector.co.uk is the place to find us. Don't delay. Subscribe today.